what specifically about self storage uh, interested you? I mean, personally, I I like the fact that there's there's no plumbing, there's no tenants, there's there's no laws to deal with, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of evictions. Uh, it's and a, it's replicable, like cookie cutter, right? Like you yeah, just like it doesn't it doesn't look sexy, but yeah. it's <laughs> as long as it makes money, right? <laughs> So essentially what we saw, um, exactly like what you're saying, right? Uh, we develop our portfolio. We currently own around 35 units back when in Canada. Um, and we realized the profit that we, you know, everything, every one of them was a full burst. So we were able to pay back the money, partner's money, um, you know, from doing the bird, which is great. So everything left over should just be profit. However, we realized every, you know, dollar of profit that we thought we we're going to make, whenever there's a tenant turnover, Whenever, you know, the roof breaks or where toilet breaks, toilets always break for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and we, you know, it's eats into our cash flow dramatically. And we have all these team members because, you know, we wanted to automate everything. We have property managers. We have, you know, contractors ready to go, handymen ready to go. Um, that eats into our profit margins. And it just simply because the deal size was too small. And, you know, the interest rate fluctuation as well, it really, you know, really affected our profit margins too. Hey, fellow savvy real estate investors, we have uh, Martin May and Lynn Sayre on the show today. We're really excited to have them. They are joining us from Nevada. So many of you who may know them uh, may not know that they now live in Nevada. So we are really excited to hear about their transition from moving to Canada to the United States and what they're doing there. Um, But just to give you a brief introduction about them, uh, definitely a great power couple, uh, started out their journey in Canada, uh, I believe, uh, started with living in Montreal, and then moved uh, out onto the to the East Coast, because they saw some great opportunities there, uh, developed a large wholesaling team and did a significant impressive, impressive amount of wholesale deals, uh, some some uh, fix and flips, as well as uh, running a quite a few renovations and buy and hold as well. So they have a diverse background, have done lots of different things, which has finally led them into their newest and um, most, I say, exciting venture in the United States, uh, doing some big things out there with uh, self-storage and uh, I think assisted living facilities. So I won't tell you too much more. I'll let them tell you more about all of that. Uh, Let them introduce themselves. Uh, So yeah, Lynn and uh, Martin, thank you for being on the show. Uh, Maybe tell us a little bit about yourselves and really how you got into real estate and you know what what has uh allowed you to or what has led you to where you are today yeah thank you so much for having us guys awesome yeah we yeah, both absolutely. have very different stories of how we got into real estate and we always like to say it separately but for me i i always knew i was going to do that simply because my father has always been into real estate he he was just like a part-time investor where he would get some properties flip them and then sell them back after two years. So we would constantly move from one flip to the next one uh, in order to save in taxes. So we would stay two years on a, on a flip project and then move on to the next one. And we did that for a couple of years. So I always knew I, w- I would do real estate on this side. I was always kind of in the back of my mind. Um, and then when Martin and I met, we, would, we, decided, we saw the opportunity in Moncton and we decided to just pull the trigger and go for it. <laughs> That's right. And uh, just like Lynn's family, um, I came from an immigrant household too. So it meant a lot for my family, you know, to to be able to own any kind of real estate in Canada. And I wasn't really ambitious back then. I just wanted to to buy a little condo in Montreal. You know, that's where I, that's where I went to university. That's when where I you know got my first job, and that was really just my my thinking process. 
but it was someone at work, um, you know, at the nine to five I was working with at the time, you know, that made me read this book called Rich That Poor That. And he was telling me all about, you know, his investment portfolio uh, in this part called uh, LaSalle and Verdun in, uh, in Montreal. And he was essentially showing me, hey, this is how you can live for free. And this is how you can have other people pay for your, your mortgage and pay for all your living expenses. So that's where I learned about house, house hacking. That's where I learned about, you know, managing tenants. Um, I ended up buying this speed up duplex. Um, I definitely overpaid for it. I didn't know what I was doing at all. But thankfully, real estate is a very forgiving game. And just like Lin said, when we came across a new Brunswick market, we felt like it checked a lot of the boxes financially. Um, and also even just as a market, it made a lot more sense compared to what we're seeing in Montreal. So we just, you know, jumped right on it and we packed up the car. We moved to New Brunswick because we wanted to look for our own off-market deals instead of, you know, just getting overbid on the market, uh, falling into competition and falling into, um, you know, essentially not being able to um, talk to the sellers ourselves. So that's what we ended up doing. Um, and that's what got us into real estate. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, no, it's funny. Every time we talk to people, it's it's like a common thread with this rich dad, poor dad thing, right? And I mean, it's it's insane it's how one impactful book. he has been on people. But yeah, yeah. um, yeah, I know us too, rich dad, poor dad. And I remember like right out of university, I think like the first year out of university when I finished school, um, they had an alumni event and he came. And yeah. Jose and I were like, yes, we're there. Like we were just like so excited to meet the guy. But um yeah. It's unbelievable. Uh, you know how so yeah, no, uh everybody who hasn't read Rich Dad Morda yet, definitely go pick up a copy because yeah. there is th- this undeniable thread with everybody we talk to and that they have at some point read the book. So yeah, I would say it's been probably the number one book that every every other uh, uh guest that we've talked to yeah, that has made the most impact on them and that kind of turning point in their life that hey I, there's a better way than just being a nine to five employee. You know, there's in any book by Kiyosaki, I, I've, I've read, you know, it, there's, there's always so many golden nuggets uh, uh, from him. So yeah, it's. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. So, yeah. So talk to us about um, your journey and like what you guys were doing out on the East coast. I mean, that's um, it's a big part of your journey. And I think maybe like a big turning point for you guys in terms of uh, really making the move from being like a, you know, an, a sort of a, a passive or a sideline investor to really building a business in the real estate industry. It all, I feel like it all happened just coincidentally. So I was moving to Moncton, New Brunswick because I wanted to study criminology in French and there wasn't a lot of programs available, but University of Moncton would have had a program available in criminology in French. So my main reason to go there was that. And then I met Martin right before moving, probably like a month before. Um, So to me, this, you know, nice stranger that I met one day at a party that was, you know, interesting enough, but it wasn't necessarily going to go any further. And then I moved to Moncton to, to go for school and, and we kind of kept contact. He came to visit um, and then we kept getting closer. But the reason why I'm telling you is because I was looking for apartments to rent when I moved there. So I, I had a temporary place that I was staying at that was completely horrible, but that's another story. Um, and Martin was helping me find a rental. And we realized that the rental prices are very similar to what you can find in Moncton. I was uh, in Montreal. So I was looking for a two bedroom and that the prices were around 1,400, 1,300. And Martin in his duplex was able to rent his three bedroom um, apartment for around the same price, maybe just slightly over. So we realized, wow, like there's 
the, this, the, the prices are very comparable, but the purchase price for the property is just a fraction of what you would spend in, in Montreal. And, and it was really funny because at a time, um, again, we we were only we only been dating for like a month, right? But as soon as we moved there, or sorry, as soon as I went to visit, I was like, Lynn, please don't rent anything from, <laughs> from here. This makes no sense. Like, if you want, we can, you know, like, this is what I did in Montreal. You can do the same thing. You can buy a duplex, you can buy a fourplex, even a portion of it. I can, you know, do the down payment. It will be considered a venture. Um, cause we, again, we were only like a month in, into the relationship, right? So it, it wasn't like, okay, let's buy, build an empire. It was very much just, Hey, I think it's a, a better financial decision for you buy. to buy, um, and be a landlord in this environment. And as we looked deeper into it, as we, you know, came across YouTube channels, such as Matt McKeever or Austin Yates and, um, you know, these real estate influencers, uh, in Canada, we realized you can actually scale this as a business. Um, so we soon enough realized we should really scale this up to, you know, have an entire rental portfolio in this market. We dive deeper into, you know, essentially what was driven, uh, what was driving all this uh, demand in Moncton, the housing market. We realized that, you know, the French schools, uh, they also have English schools. There's a lot of immigrants who choose to come through the East Coast because it's a lot easier for them to get PR status. Uh, we also realized it's a great university town. It's a great blue collar worker town. Uh, there's a lot of call centers, um, a lot of industrial workers uh, being based out of New Brunswick, specifically Mountain. It's also its location. Mountain is is considered the hub of the Atlantic. So if you're going to anywhere in the Atlantic, chances are you might have to pass through Mountain. But it's also two hours away from any major point. It's about two hours away from Fredericton, from Nova Scotia, from Halifax, from the major airports in Halifax as well. So a lot of especially distribution companies like Amazon, like Walmart, uh, are looking to relocate in Moncton simply because they have you know, the accessible to multiple different points um, in the Atlantic Canada. So it's also cheaper to buy land, cheaper to build. Um, the real estate was a lot more affordable there. So a lot of companies were just relocating at their headquarters, relocating their distribution centers up in, in, in the Moncton area. So that brought a lot more immigration, a lot more workers, a lot more tenants that are looking for places to rent. Um, and at the time, duplexes were trading for around 160, 180 thousand uh, dollars for a duplex so to me as a student who did not want to pay a thousand three hundred a thousand four hundred a month for rent it was a great idea for me to buy something rent out the other side four thousand two hundred and that would have paid for most of my expenses and I would have just nothing left to pay maybe even a little more profit on top of it so that that's where it all started yeah but maybe can you can you walk us through uh like a little bit more detail on a, on, a, on a deal like that uh and how much um you know you said around $180,000 purchase price. This is for duplex. Yeah. That's for duplex. So it's like already of- duplexed. Yes. Yeah. A purpose already a legal duplex. duplex. And yep. then uh, are you putting any, was your, what was your typical strategy or bread and butter, like uh, rental strategy? Would you be putting in some uh, renovation money into it typically? And then how much in total rents would you get? So we have, we have different options. We created the wholesaling company to bring in constant leads. And then from there, we can decide whether do we want to wholesale it, do we want to keep it, do we want to flip it, burn it. But our go-to was usually just joint venture burrs. So we would partner with a money partner, buy the property together um, and burn the property. So we would buy it at a discount and needs a little bit of renovations. So like a side-by-side duplex, that would be 175 at the time when we started. 
Um, and that's three bedroom on one side, three bedroom on the other on two floors with a finished basement, which is a wow. lot of square footage. So we're looking at a thousand, two thousand, three uh, in square footage for each side. That usually could rent anywhere between a thousand five to a thousand seven, depending on how nice the finishes are. So we would buy it, do the renovations, update the kitchens, the bathroom, the flooring, paint a little bit. Uh, make it look a lot more modern and a lot more desirable for tenant profiles. And then we would rent it for around a thousand, five, a thousand six uh, per side. Um, per side. Well, wow. So that, that's that you're, amazing. You're bringing in like 3,000, 3,200. That's uh, right. In total. Wow. Exactly. Yeah. And that pays that, for your that's, that's great numbers. Yeah. Yeah. Everything else, yeah. So we've done a couple of deals like that. Uh, we also wholesale a couple of deals like that. Um, so the ARV, usually you're looking at, you know, above 300. Um, and this was, about a year ago. Yeah. So this is, it's been a while since, since we did that. Right. So, um, you know, looking at purchase price, 175 renovation, 30, 40,000 and your ARV, you'll be looking at 300 and above because, you know, because of the high rents and because of, you know, just how crazy the market has been. It was extremely competitive. Yeah. Every retail we would call will have already an offer and a backup offer and, and a long list of people he could call if he needed to sell the house again. So it, it was really hard to secure anything. And at the time we were, you know, we felt like, are, did we just, what did we just come across? Like, are, are other people like seeing this? So we started, you know, uh, we built this website on Carrot platform. It's called New Brunswick Property Deals. And we also started a YouTube channel because we felt like there was nobody talking about New Brunswick, even though everyone was, you know, talking about real estate, talking about birds, talking about how much passive income they were making. We felt like, yo, like New Brunswick, it should be on the radar for every investor out there. So we built this channel. We were interviewing local experts. We're local. We're interviewing other investors. We're interviewing, you know, these contractors, uh, property managers, trying to advertise their service and most importantly, trying to add value to other investors. And that generated a lot of traction uh, because, you know, who would be looking at, you know, Moncton tenancy laws or Moncton duplex conversions on YouTube, right? Um, so those are like the qualified buyers. Those are the perfect JV partner profiles. And that's how we scale out our business, you know, just by creating content and by trying to add value to other people. That was actually going to be my next question as to how you found the money partners for your deals, because you were basically going to a new town. You didn't have many contacts, I'm assuming. Um, you know, how, how did you bring in a lot of partners from uh, Montreal as well? We were also very new to real estate. This this was our, our first venture into the industry. So it's not like we yeah, had yeah. any contacts that we could bring with us. Of course. Um, it all happened organically. And uh, we did a lot of um, guerrilla marketing strategies where we would just reach out to as many people as possible on Facebook, send them a little message be like, hey, we're holding something in New Brunswick. If you're looking for deals in that area, let's get on a call. Um, a lot of it happened from that, from Facebook groups, from trying to network with people. And it was all online because it was, New Brunswick was still in lockdown at the time. There was nobody was able to fly in or yeah, out yeah, of Brunswick without a really good reason, unless you're relocating or you have family there. So um, it, it had to happen. So we virtually tried and met as many people as possible and add them to our list. The website really helped because we would just send them the website link. Be like, hey, this is our website link. If you want to add yourself to the buyer's list, and they would put in all their information. Um, but I know one of the best JV partners that we've had um it was simply from Martin just sending them uh, a little message on Facebook and be like, hey, this is what we're doing. This is what we're trying to accomplish. Let's get on the call. And, and it kind of started everything. Yeah. And for them, um, for a lot of these investors, it makes a lot of sense because, you know, again, we're talking, this is, you know, late 2020, 
um, early 2021. Um, most of these investors, you know, they made a killing from investing in places like Windsor, you know, secondary markets in Ontario. Yeah. So they saw that crazy market appreciation that happened there. It just exploded in growth, right? So they're seeing the same thing, you know, if the economics makes sense, if the market demand is there, if the market is relatively stable, um, you know, in the past, um, they really saw Moncton being the next Windsor. So it was honestly an easy sell. We didn't really have to pitch anything. All we shared was, um, you know, this is what we're doing in New Brunswick. Like, do you want to know more about it? So okay. they just, you know, I, we just naturally attracted all these people that found a lot of success in, you know, similar markets in Ontario. Yeah. And the numbers were speaking for themselves, right? So the That's numbers right. were solid. The rent, the rents are solid out there too. So, um, yeah. So talk to and, us. And then of course, uh, better tenant laws too, like yeah, <laughs> instead of uh, Ontario and Quebec. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Definitely. That I feel like Ontario and Quebec are very, un- like they definitely are in place to protect tenants, but they're at a point where it starts becoming really unfair for, for the landlords where you, you know, you're at a point where you can get a tenant in your house that isn't paying rent for over six months and you still have to wait for a court, you still have to wait for the tenancy boards yeah. to get back to you in order to do anything and you're losing income and you're not paying your mortgage anymore and it gets you into a pretty bad situation. So that was a huge major plus for, for investors in New Brunswick because you don't have as many roadblocks. So are you guys still actively wholesaling or are doing any work out in Moncton or have you completely transitioned the business into the United States now? So it's a great question. So we are in the middle of, uh, you know, at, at first, when we first moved here, we're like, you know what, I think we can try to do both. Uh, but as, you know, deeper as we dive into, you know, self-storage and assisted living facilities, we realize it makes a lot of sense for us to scale uh, in these directions, right, commercial real estate. And we felt like our time and also our team's time uh, would be better spent, you know, doing these commercial deals. Um, simply, you know, just because there are way fewer headaches <laughs> that are involved. So obviously, you know, different kind of headaches, it has its disadvantages as well, but um, a lot of that can be mitigated. Uh, we also realized that, you know, the residential compared to commercial real estate, residential is heavily affected by the market conditions, by the interest rates. Um, and essentially, you know, like as we saw recently in the market, there, there's been another interest rate hike. The flip that we thought we we're going to sell, um, the buyer backed out in the last second because they were like, yeah, I can no longer qualify. So that's, to be honest, greatly affected our business, right? On the wholesaling and the flipping side. However, within commercial real estate, um, if you can control the net operating income, you know, whether you're talking a multifamily, whether you're talking an industrial warehouse or self-storage, you are almost, you're controlling your own destiny here. So it really depends on how efficient you can run your, your um, you know, property, how, um, what, what kind of strategy you have in place. And that's why I think, you know, commercial is, it's a lot more recession resistant. Um, so to answer your question, we are, you know, really slowing down our operation in New Brunswick. So our entire team can focus on what we're doing in the States. Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. <clears throat> yeah. So, so I, you know, we talked a little bit offline as to why you guys chose to move to the U.S. Um, tell us how that process was. Like, I'm sure it's a, it was a it was a big move. I mean, because you gotta now reestablish your credit and among other things, right? So tell us that that whole process because there's a lot of this has been happening a, a lot more. Uh, I'm seeing now in the industry, Canadians uh, moving to the United States, yeah, or wanting to. There's definitely a couple of hoops you have to jump through. It's it's nothing like 
out of reach for anybody, but it's, it's still a little um, challenging. So basically the first thing you need to do is hire a really good lawyer um, that can create a structure for you um, in the US. So basically the structure we have, and if, I don't even understand it 100%, but um, basically we have a limited partnership that is uh, between our company in Canada and a holding company that we have here in, um, or the opposite, sorry, we have a holding company here that's that's um, made from the company company that we have in Canada and a limited partnership that we have here. So we can buy assets with the limited partnership. It has its own uh, employer number, its own EIN. Um, and on the personal side, and our lawyer went towards getting us an ITIN, which is a tax identification number that is kind of that serves as a SIN, as a SIN number, as a social security number. And you can open bank accounts with it. You can apply for um, different things with that EIN as well. So that was one of the major things we had to do. We're currently working towards getting what we call an E2 visa, which is an investor visa. Requires about $100,000 investment into an active business that hires Americans to be able to qualify for that visa. So we're actively working towards getting all of that set up, getting the immigration lawyer to do the paperwork and, and, and submit all of that. Um, so that was, I feel like, the major hoops we had to jump through. But it was all worth it because there's just so many more benefits into investing in the U.S. You have favorable tax laws. There's some states where you don't have uh, state income tax. Um, you have a lot of tax benefits. There's a 1031 exchange where you can take your proceeds from a sale, roll them into an ex-investment, and don't have to pay any taxes on it. Um, it's just overall a more um, entrepreneur-friendly country. There isn't as many roadblocks. There isn't as many regulations. It's not as... Um, it's not as regulated and monitored and controlled as it would be in Canada. And, right? and more specifically, you know, for the asset types that we're looking for within self-storage, um, you know, we we really like self-storage. Like this was a year ago when we discovered self-storage as a type of investment. So we were looking aggressively in the East Coast already. And I was doing direct mail campaigns. I was doing cold calling campaigns. I essentially had my uh, team member, you know, compile the entire list of every single self-storage facility uh, that there was in Eastern Canada in you know all of the provinces that we had. And I realized most of them were actually controlled by REITs. Uh, they were owned by REITs were nationwide operators. Um, and those were not necessarily facilities you want to go after because there, you know, there's not a whole lot of uh, uh, meat on the bone or any value that you can increase, right? You, you want to go after the mom and pop operators. Uh, another huge thing that we realized is... Um, the demand is completely different too. So in the industry, there's an equilibrium to evaluate the supply and demand. And that point for the national average for the states, it's around 7.8 square foot per capita. So essentially every person um, in the states averages out to, you know, they need around 7.8 square foot of self-storage okay. in order to, you know, be at an equilibrium. However, that same number in the States, you're looking at three square foot per capita. <laughs> Americans just, yeah, in, in Canada. So Americans just tend to spend more. They tend to be a little more capitalist. They they like to hold on to a lot more stuff. They have bigger families that have more cars <laughs> um, and they live in HOAs that have strict rules about you know what you can store, what you cannot store. But it's it's more than double, more than double the square footage needed, yeah. like uh, the demand in, in right. the US than uh than Canada, which is yeah, well, wow. With also 10 times the population too, right? In the sun. Yeah. That's the other thing. And the homes are built different. I mean, a, a lot of the homes, especially in the Sun Valley, don't have attics. They don't have a basement. So there's really no place for them to store their items. I also noticed that sheds are not as, as popular as we have them in Canada. People don't really have sheds in their backyards. It's, they usually have a pool 
um, and a little bit of grass, but I've never seen, I don't know, have you? I've never seen sheds and, and, and people here. So they don't necessarily have places in their homes to store their stuff. Granted, we live in Nevada, right? So so in the Midwest, definitely. They probably like, do, yeah. yeah. So, but in a sun belt where it's really hot, they usually avoid attics and basements. Uh, it's it's just not very efficient for them to to uh, have to cool those spaces either. So um, they don't necessarily have a lot of storage available inside their home. So they seek that out out in uh, storage facilities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. for sure. But what 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 specifically about self storage uh, interested you? I mean, personally, I I like the fact that there's there's no plumbing, there's no tenants, there's there's no laws to deal with. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, in terms of evictions. Uh, it's and a, it's replicable, like cookie cutter, right? Like you yeah, just like boxes. it doesn't it doesn't look sexy, but yeah. it is as long as it makes money, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so essentially, what we saw, um, exactly like what you're saying, right? Uh, we develop our portfolio. We currently own around 35 units back when in Canada, um, and we realized the profit that we, you know, everything, every one of them was a full burst. So we were able to pay back the money partner's money, um, you know, from doing the bird, which is great. So everything left over should just be profit. However, we realized every, you know, dollar of profit that we thought we we're going to make, whenever there's a tenant turnover, whenever, you know, the roof breaks or where toilet breaks, toilets always break for some reason. Yeah. <laughs> um, and we, you know, it's eats into our cash flow dramatically. And we have all these team members because, you know, we wanted to automate everything. We have property managers, we have, you know, contractors ready to go, handymen ready to go. Um, that eats into our profit margins. And it just simply because the deal size was too small. And, you know, the interest rate fluctuation as well, it really, you know, really affected our profit margins too. So what we really like about self-storage is it's exactly the same way to underwrite it as a multifamily building. You can burn it, you can develop it. Um, you know, it, it makes sense to us. Um, the learning curve um, isn't as steep because, you know, we came from the multifamily route, um, but, you know, you're dealing with it without any of the headaches. <laughs> and you, if you have a facility that's big enough, uh, so in the industry, if you have a, a storage facility that's over 20,000 square foot, um, you are able to tap into these REITs. Uh, they have their property management um, infrastructure uh, that you can hire at, you know, 3% or 4% and they can manage it as if this is their own own property. So imagine having CubeSmart manage, you know, your your facility. Um, you know, they that's really a hands-off approach in a lot of ways. Right. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. So uh what's your strategy? Are you guys purchasing uh self-storage facilities that are already existent and burying them? Or I think we talked a little bit about potentially uh looking into some development. So tell us about that and and maybe tell us why one versus the other or 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 what the benefits are for either or. Definitely. So there are really two major ways that we're doing this. Um, there are other ways too, uh, but right now what we're focusing on, one of them is value add. Um, so buying from an existing mom and pop and uh, turning it into you know a better performing asset. So a couple of ways of you know doing that, you can either increase the revenue by simply adjusting to market rent. A lot of these mom and pop operators, what we're realizing is because they own it for decades, they might have given some units away to their family members. And, you know, it might have been their close friends who are renting from them. So never really adjusted the rent. Um, within the self-storage industry, you're really supposed to do dynamic pricing. There yeah. should be a street rate. There should be a website rate. Um, you know, you, you're constantly running promotions and you never want your self-storage facility to be 100% occupied uh, in terms of occupancy. You want it to be around, you know, anywhere from 87 to 92%. And that will show a healthy amount of uh, 
you know, rent increases uh, to all of your units across the portfolio. Um, another really good way to add value um, is by buying a facility with excess land that you can build on. Um, because essentially what you're building is just sheet metals, concrete, steel construction. So it, it costs very little to build compared to how much value that you can generate to the facility. Um, so I absolutely love that factor above value add. Um, so that's very much in our buy box too. Whenever I'm talking to these wholesalers or realtors, I'm asking them, hey, like, does this property have excess land uh, that I can build on? What are the inefficiencies that the current operator um, you know, is facing so that I can come in and fix it? Uh, the second strategy that, that we are using and that we are uh, you know, seeing like great returns from as well is ground up development. So um, the reason why it's so favorable uh, compared to value add is essentially you have way bigger exit strategy potential um, because essentially whenever you're doing a ground up, um, we partner up with a group of developers um, out of New Jersey. They're called the Story Syndicate. Um, they're our mentors. Uh, they're the mastermind that we're a part of. Um, but whenever we do a deal, we get to leverage their expertise, leverage their power team um, for our own projects as well. So what they've been doing for the past couple of years is they also transition from residential real estate. The main guy, Joe, um, he wrote a book about you know flipping houses. He used to flip over 100 houses per year. And what they're currently doing right now is they will build a class A facility. So that's any facility that's 80,000 square foot and up in terms of net rentable square foot. And they're, you know, about 40% of the units are climate controlled. So those are the units you can charge for a premium. The rest are drive up. Um, it's got a beautiful office, well lit up, you know, beautiful fence, automated fence. And most of them are actually, you know, um, managed uh, virtually. So they're managed by a self-checking kiosk. They don't have any real employees working. So they're able to reduce the expenses. So their exit strategy for something like that is either refinance or they could sell to a REIT. They could sell their facility to CubeSmart, to U-Haul, because those REITs, they're looking to penetrate the market. The same number that I told you, um, around 60%, 70% of the self-storage facilities in Canada, they're owned by REITs. Well, it's a direct opposite here in Canada, in the US. Most of them are mom and pop. So the REITs are just realizing how great this industry is. However, they don't have any market shares yet. As much of money as they're making, they're like, okay, we need to, you know, uh, gain more market shares. So beyond building themselves, they're also acquiring these, um, you know, white label facilities that have been recently built um, and they're buying them as certificate occupancy. So you can even sell your facility that you just built without a single tenant in. They will pay, um, you know, for that at a compressed cap rate. So that's a huge exit. If you're dealing with a project, you know, that's has a net operating income of over a million dollars. Um, a difference of 5.5% cap rate, which should be the market rate for a facility like that, they're willing to buy a 2% cap rate. So that's a huge lift in, in the valuation that you can create um, just by having a, another exit strategy. The, the interesting comparison here is that if, I, if we were to go and buy a duplex, the valuation of that duplex would be based on the building cost. And because you're building, there's plumbing, there's electrical, there's framing, insulation, roofing, all of that, your cost to build is, a, is really high. And you end up having to sell the property for around how much you built it for, maybe a little more. If you're looking into self-storage because you're only putting up shit mellows, concrete and steel, it doesn't cost you that much to build. And then when you go and lease up the units, your valuation is based on your NOI. And your valuation based on your NOI ends up being a lot greater than what you would build it for. So one of the mm -hmm. projects that we're currently working on 
they're estimating the renovation cost to be around 13 to 14 million dollars. But once it's fully leased up and fully built, we're looking at an evaluation of 26 to 28 million dollars, which is a lot higher than what you build it for. So you're forcing that appreciation, you're forcing that um, that added value there. Yeah. Um, and then mm-hmm. you can sell it at quite a bit of profit. Yeah. Yeah, I know that's amazing. I and and so when you're looking at let's say like the existing facilities. Um, what type of, uh, just so that our audience kind of gets a perspective on the returns, right? What sort of cash on cash return would you be expecting from a uh, value add, uh, you know, self-storage facility like that you're purchasing from a mom and pop operator? Yeah. So that's a fantastic question too. Um, but let me preface it with um, not every self-storage facilities build the same, right? So in the yeah. sense that um, the size of it might really, you know, be different from one or another. So if you buy anything that's less than 10,000 square foot, so usually you're looking at probably less than a hundred units, you know, around 50 or 70 units, you're really just buying a single family house or a semi-detached. Um, it is, you know, uh, you know, it's way fewer headaches and, and you, you are going to generate uh, more compared to a single family, but just trying to compare in terms of what kind of cash flow you can expect. It's very minimum cash flow. Um, and whatever system you have in place, it's hard for you to scale because you're only doing that across, you know, less than 100 units. Um, so what we typically look for, you know, we're looking for at least facilities, at least 15,000 square foot and above with excess land to build so we can, you know, reach the 50,000 rent- net rentable square foot mark. So that we found is like a really good space to be in um, because, you know, that's where you can really leverage professional management teams. That's where you can really create tremendous value. So that's almost like uh, buying an apartment building that's in the, you know, six unit to to 12 unit space. Um, and anything above that, you know, if you're building a class A facility, you're buying an apartment complex, right? You're, right. you're, you're running it at a REIT level. So what we're seeing a lot of times too is um, a lot of, you know, these investors, and uh, by the way, we're not the only one doing this, right? There's so many real estate investors that transition from residential into self-storage for exactly the same reasons. Um, but a lot of them tend to just buy, you know, hey, we're going to start small. But chances are, you know, if you're just buying a small facility, um, you're just creating another job, like because you won't be able to afford, um, you know, an onsite manager or any of these self-checking automations that I told you about, uh, because you simply, you're just not generating enough revenue. Um, a huge criteria that, look, that we look for, here's a set of criteria that we look for. Um, I think this might be beneficial, you know, for everyone that's looking to get into the industry. So what I said about, you know, square foot per capita, every single state is different or every single province, um, matter of fact, in Canada is also different, right? So you want to check, um, you know, if you're buying Arizona, what is that square foot per capita as an equilibrium? So we can make sure your facility in the three mile radius, you know, what is that comparing to what the state average is, as well as the rate per square foot, exactly how much, um, you know, can you charge for your units? Um, and that's a great determinant of how much money you're going to make. It's just right. to determine what the demand is and if there's you know, a need for more supply. If you're realizing that it's very saturated, that the area you're looking to buy your facility is way over the, the, the state average, then it's probably not a good idea to get into it. But right. if you realize that it's way under, then that means there's a lot more demand and there's still a lot more supply needed in that area. So, so the the site that we're working on right now in Indiana, and we we were doing it with Store Syndicate, right? So it took them about ten months to find this, uh, you know, site like this, um, because you know there's so many land, so many land opportunities out there that are commercially zone or industrial zone. 
but dairy markets are extremely saturated where dairy markets where you can only charge very little uh, rate per square foot. So this one, um, a feasibility study was done. Um, it was essentially a professional third-party opinion um, that's extremely detailed. It's essentially a 70 page, 75 page business strategy. They look at the demand, they look at the supply, they look at you know the current climate and what kind of construction you should have, all of that factors. Um, so to, to share some light on that, um, essentially, for that, it's looking like all the competitors in the three-mile radius, uh, you're looking at C-class facilities or B-class facilities, while we're coming in to build an A-class facility. And these competitor facilities, competing facilities, um, all of them are running at 95 to 100% occupancy. So that shows a real need um, for more self-storage. Um, and, you know, even if they're only running, you know, most of them don't even have tem temperature control units. They're just, you know, simple drive up uh, sheet metal with a steel door. Um, so all of that is telling us, okay, there's a healthy uh, demand here. And they're also able to calculate in the three mile radius, what exactly is the population size and how much currently, you know, how much current supply is there. So they're able to calculate that three mile radius needs around another 400,000 square foot of self-storage. So in theory, if we were to build this one project, we could build another three projects and we will probably just around the equilibrium uh, place. So that's what we love about self-storage is like, because of the feasibility study, it's almost bulletproof. Um, you have so many eyes that are on this. You have so many professional opinions that are on this. Banks require it to even give you any loan at all. Um, so it's very different from a, you know, appraisal, if the appraisal, um, you know, it, it can come in higher, it can come in lower. And if it comes in lower, people, a lot of people are buying with emotions. They're like, no, it's okay. I'm just going to put it a bigger down payment. Um, that's not how it works in commercial real estate, right? It's hard driven by facts, by, by numbers, and by analysis. Um, another part of the feasibility study is also the medium household income. They want to make sure, okay, what is the purchasing style of all the population in this, uh, in this uh, three-mile radius? How many cars do they have? How much disposal income do they have? What's their political view? All of that is calculated, you know, based on the census data. So, um, yeah, if you haven't seen a feasibility study within the self storage, make sure you get your house up, uh, get get your hands on one. If if you want one, you can even reach out to us. We'll love to send you uh, send you the one yeah. we have. The amount of details that comes into that report is it's extremely helpful in understanding how to run your business, understanding who the population your clients are going to be, the demand, you know, what kind of demand do you have around you? What do you want to build? How much square footage you want to build? So it's, it answers all of your question. And now granted, it's a very expensive report to get. I think it's around $20,000 just to get that report. So you don't want to just get feasibility studies as part of your due diligence. You want to do your due diligence first. And when you're sure, then you get your feasibility study. But it definitely helps a lot in in bulletproofing your your um your business right. model and and getting all those financial analysis and those projections and done by consultants and experts already. Yeah, because one of my one of my thoughts uh with self storage was that because it's so easy to construct, right? Um, are you going to have more and more competition pop up everywhere, right? Because they they're just like you're seeing an opportunity to build. Are there going to be more uh, bigger players uh, wanting to build in that same area, and and would that would that you know specific pocket get saturated uh, fairly quickly? Is my is kind of what maybe uh, you tell us your thoughts on that? Absolutely, that's a fantastic question, right? And that's honestly what we're seeing a lot of times. A lot of these developers 
um, you know, they might have come from, you know, private equity money where they might have yeah. come from, you know, a large pool of investors and they see this as a, a great asset type. Uh, so what we're seeing in the market right now, if you go on LoopNet, if you go on Crexy, you're going to see a lot of abandoned development projects that, you know, that were halfway finished and they realized, oh, this is, <laughs> this is not going to make any money because all the other competitors, um, you know, they're simply just not, um, you know, having enough tenants to, to make that net operating income. So uh, we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing a lot of development projects that are getting abandoned, to be honest. Um, but we realize that, you know, it's because they haven't done the extensive research that, that you know, we're currently doing or the, the way our team is doing it. Um, they're essentially, sh- you know, they're, they're not using any of the bank financing. They're not going the feasibility study route. Um, they just think of it as a fast forward market. They think if I build it, tenants will come. Well, you know, a lot of uh, these projects fail because of that, right? So that's why feasibility study really comes into place. That's why, you know, just because you have a site, just because you have four acres or six acres, it doesn't mean it will be a good site for self-storage. Um, so I think that's a very, very important point that you brought up here, right? It's also, there's there's a couple roadblocks. It's not, it's it's doable for most people who put their hats to it, but there's a couple roadblocks. Finding the site is one of the hardest parts. As you said, Martin, finding the right site with the right the, in the right area with the right household income uh with the right demand for storage is is really hard and it, t- it took our our team about 10 months before they could find something that made sense um so that's that's one major thing and then finding getting the financing we're talking about a 14 million dollar building project not everyone has that kind of money laying around in the bank account um so getting a qualifying partner or raising that kind of money it's 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 definitely a process that makes it less competitive because not everybody's willing to go through all of that process but it's definitely very profitable at the end once you do all your due diligence once you make sure your project is is viable and doable it definitely you know it comes with a great greater return it's also important to note that um you know the team, the way they're doing it, because I actually started off by, I was like, I want to learn everything about what you guys are doing. So I jump on the team that's, they're called certified field agents. They call themselves CFAs, which I'm pretty sure you can't just call yourself a CFA because that's actually a title for, but it's anyways, that's another point. But the entire program of CFAs that are, um, you know, partially full-time employees some partially are just people who are commission basis. Every single day, they scrape Crexy, scrape LoopNet for any sites. They put it on the Monday board, and then their internal employees are underwriting, are looking at you know the square foot per capita, are looking at the rate per square foot. They're looking at how many other developments are currently in process because you have data to all of that, right? You're able to see um, on this platform called Radius Plus, you're able to see what projects are currently in the planning phase, what projects are currently in the development phase, uh, what projects are currently in, in the you know construction phase. So you're able to have visibility on all of that. So if any land in the three mile radius, if they see the potential threat of a competitor coming into the space, they're going to can it. They're going to be like, no, this land is no good. If the square footage of capita, if it seems too saturated with very little rent, um, they're going to be like, no, too bad. Next one, right? So that's why it took them 10 months to find the perfect site um, obviously, they also found other sites along with it. I'm just saying Indiana was one of the, the sites you know, that came through that process. So um, the screening process is extremely, extremely uh, tedious. And it, you know, I, I think it's very sophisticated the way they have it set up. Um, so that's one way that we're mitigating um, you know, um, building in an area that's you know, already overdeveloped or got, that's going to be saturated. Oh, that's pretty cool. So yeah, guys, I mean, uh, 
I think we could go on and ask you so many more questions about this. Sounds like, uh, you know, you guys are learning so much and have so much, uh, so much knowledge already, but, um, we are kind of coming to a close with our time here. So, um, yeah, I mean, if people are interested in self-storage, which I think is a great asset class as well, um, or they want to see your feasibility study, or they just want to chat, um, are you guys currently in the midst of this project? Are you guys currently looking for people to partner with you? Like what's, what's sort of going on right now? Yeah. So we are, um, actually we just closed on this property, um, and we're doing the paperwork right now and we are going to start raising money right away. Uh, we already are connected with a securities lawyer, all of that. So for a project like this, you're looking at, you know, um, we're likely going to do the syndication model. Uh, so we're going to open it up to accredited investors. Um, I do have a lot of friends who are also non-accredited investors. So we're still deciding, you know, what to do. Uh, but essentially you would be looking at a hundred thousand to 115,000 USD to buy 1% share of this project. And what it will look like, um, you know, essentially you're looking at anywhere from 15 to 25%, um, you know, cash and cash return annualized. And we also decide, we also decide to give out a press as well. Right. So no matter what happens, as soon as you invest into the deal, we're giving, giving out 10% uh, press return to the investors. Um, so I think, you know, I, I've been pitching this to my private lenders when we're doing residential real estate, you know, fix and flips. It made a lot of sense for them, right? Instead of having their loans secured on a beat up property, um, that's very dependent on the market conditions. They're buying into a 1% into a multi-million dollar self-storage facility that's going to be professionally managed. And that's been already overviewed and by managed by, by a professional team. So I think it's a, a very straightforward uh, transition for anyone that's currently in real estate, um, in residential real estate, that's looking to diversify. We're trying to get into a better asset type. So if anyone has any questions about self-storage or want to learn more about the project that we have in Indiana, feel free to reach out uh, to either one of us. Perfect. Fantastic. So um, yeah, before we sort of wrap up, we always like to ask our guests, um, you know, is there sort of a quote or a saying that resonates with you or, you know, that... Uh, kind of fits with with your your business or your personal life goals that you like to share. Yeah, do I, I think uh, we'll probably have different answers to this. I'm I, sure. That, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think um, there's a there's a Chinese saying, right? Um, I, I have a Chinese background, that's where I grew up. So one thing that I learned when I was like eight really resonated with me, and that's what I keep on telling Lynn as well. It's a huge reason of my why of why I'm doing this. It's like treat others the way you want to be treated, and you always want to, you know, give give to those around you. Um, I feel like in, in Chinese it sounds a lot less cheesy, <laughs> but the way I'm translating it, it's probably not the best way to translate it. But that's what I that's really my motto, right? And that's why we created this YouTube channel. That's why we created, um, you know, our social media. You're gonna see it's a lot about content. It's a lot. It's it's not necessarily just say, hey, like this is what we're doing. It's more about here are the mistakes that we learned. Here are the things that we learned. Hopefully you can avoid those mistakes where here's like a great little snippet that we got from interviewing this person. Check it out. Like hopefully this will help you too. So, you know, the, the whole reason for my why, for, for why we're doing this is so we can have financial freedom, so we can have, you know, um, time freedom, all that. But what am I doing with all the freedom? I want to use my resources to, to help others or to, to help others realize their dreams as well. I want to be able to invest in other people's projects I want to be able to partner up with people who are looking to create a positive impact on the world. And that's, you know, the, really the reason why I'm doing this um, is to, to be able to give, to be able to 
leave a positive impact on on those around me. Yeah, wonderful. Mine might sound a little dark, but um, (laughs) basically the code, I I can't quote it word to word, but it basically sounds as sometimes you might feel like you have been buried, but you have been planted. So to me, what it means is like, if you feel like everything is so overwhelming and and, and it's hard and and you're going to make mistakes and you feel like you can't do it, but it's simply because you're at that phase where you're growing and you're learning and you're going to become, you know, you're going to get out of that um, underground. Um, yeah, yeah. Some some things just take time, right? Uh, right. It's a it's a long term mindset, and and um, it's things just don't happen overnight. You no, know? no. Or some, also, it takes many years, especially like a development project. And real estate in general, I think that yeah. everybody thinks it's get rich quick, but it is not. It is slow and steady wins the race, right? So this is not being afraid of making mistakes, getting yeah. yourself out there, you know, getting it done regardless, and then learning from your experience. That's those are the the main parts. Yeah, percent. Absolutely. You, and you're absolutely right. Like it, it it is it is one of those things where sometimes just the just how big it is makes you feel like you are buried, right? Like, it's like, how am I ever going to like submerge and become that tall tree? And how am I ever going to get out from this like phase of like grinding, you know, like, and we've been there too. Like, we still feel like that someday. It's like, wake up in the morning. It's like, oh crap. Like I got to grind today, right? Like, how am I going to get out of this? Um, But absolutely. That's such a, that's such a great quote. And and I, I, it's such a great sentiment. So I really like that a lot. Um, So yeah, we will definitely link all of your social assets and your website, um, both of your Instagram profiles, your email addresses um, in our show notes. Uh, Encourage people to reach out, follow you guys on Instagram. Um, Definitely connect with you if they have any questions or are interested in learning more about all of the things you do, maybe Moncton, maybe um, self-storage, whatever it is, whatever direction they're looking to go in. So thank you both for being on the show, for sharing your story. I think you have lots of great years of success ahead of you. Um, you know, uh, really excited to see what you guys do and to follow along your journey in the next couple of years. Yeah. Thank you for having us guys. This was awesome. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Uh, and your website, once again, it's mainly property solutions. You got it. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Fantastic. No, thank you so much. It was super All fun. Right. With you guys. Thanks again, Martin and uh, Lynn. Talk to you soon. Okay.